today's scripture reading is from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. When the servant of the man of God got up and went early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Do not be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down toward them, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, This is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and there they were, inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them, so that they may eat and drink, and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. This is our second Sunday in Advent, and in the church calendar, we have these two seasons of preparation. One is Advent, and one is Lent. So the, the church, the Christian church calendar is kind of the circle that you see on the screen. During Lent, we are preparing for the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, and during Advent, we are preparing for the incarnation of Christ, Christ coming in the flesh, as we Christians weirdly say. In different church traditions, who uses the word flesh other than the church? In different traditions, uh, Christians have sometimes focused more on the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ because that's the work of salvation, right? That's like the clincher to the whole gospel story. And in fact, the early church didn't even celebrate Christmas or the birth of Christ for the first 300 years. The first recorded Christmas was in 336 AD that it was celebrated. Um, birthdays generally were not celebrated, probably in part because there were such high infant mortality rates. But also remember that the church existed under severe persecution for the first several centuries. So believers and followers of Jesus would relate very strongly to the death and resurrection of Christ and the comfort in that. But the fact is... There is no crucifixion and there is no resurrection without the incarnation. And even though we love the sweetness of the Christmas story and all the theology around the God of the universe becoming a tiny baby, we have to remember that also the incarnation means nothing without the crucifixion and the resurrection. So God came to be with us, but he came to save us. We need the whole circle. So really now where we are living is we are living after the resurrection, but before Christ comes again. We're living in what we call in the church calendar ordinary time. In the big picture, that's where we are, after the resurrection, but we are still waiting for Jesus to come again. 
But God came to be with us through the birth of Jesus in a way that he had never come to be with his people before. And God with us matters. It's the beginning and it's the end. It's God with us forever and ever. Amen. So keeping in mind that the Bible is one story of God's redemption plan, we can zoom out, we can look at the whole story, we can see that it starts and ends with God with us. God is with us in the garden in Genesis, and he is with us forever at the end of the story in Revelation. God is also with us in the in-between, in history, and sometimes we can see God's presence, and sometimes we can't. And even though, even uh, throughout the biblical text, Sometimes we can see God, sometimes we can't. God is visible in the burning bush, in the pillar of cloud and fire, as the angel of the Lord through the anointing of kings in the miracles and the works of the prophets. But then sometimes we don't see God or we're not sure what's happening. Last week we looked at the story of Esther where God is actually never mentioned in the text, but his presence is still there working with his people. He is the hope in their hopeless situation. And a savior is raised up to deliver, and a savior is raised up to deliver the people, which sounds a little bit like Christmas, doesn't it? So that's Advent. Before we jump into the scripture that Stephen read for us this morning, I think it's important to know our Bible history. I think it's important to know the context and what's happening around passages. Kids, because I made them listen to about 800 years of Old Testament history this week. Um, but I want, so I want to give a little context to the, te the text that we're reading today. So Israel existed as a united kingdom, the 12 tribes, um, for just about over 100 years. It was ruled by three main kings, Saul, um, David, who united the 12 tribes, made the, you know, the strongest the kingdom ever was. He strategically moved the capital to Jerusalem, which was neutral territory. Um, and he moved the Ark of the Covenant, which was the visible sign of God's presence, to the capital of Israel at that time. Um, David also began plans for the construction of a temple to house the Ark of the Covenant, to house God's presence in Jerusalem, um, but the task was given to his son Solomon. Solomon is the third and final king, there's only the three, over the United Kingdom of Israel. His son comes to power, does some dumb stuff, the tribes in the north get mad, they break off. You get ten tribes in the northern kingdom, that kingdom is a northern kingdom called Israel, then you have the two remaining tribes, which are the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and then the Levites who align with them. They become the southern kingdom of Judah. They're Jerusalem in the north, their capital is Samaria. So that was a lot. But anyway, um, so I think it's important to know what's going on. So we've got Israel existing in two kingdoms at this, this time. Uh, there are strings of kings in both, good and bad. Uh, there's persistent idolatry in both. They turn to God, they turn away from God. They turn to God, they turn away from God. The northern kingdom takes on organized Baal worship. Um, and the kings are consulting the gods of other nations. Eventually, this leads to the destruction of the northern kingdom by Assyria. Assyrian empire comes in, carries off the tribes from the north, and they end up scattered throughout the Assyrian empire. The Assyrians were actually really well known for their relocation efforts. They would want to break down national identity by scattering people, and then they repopulated the north with people from other conquered areas. So the northern kingdom ceases to exist first. Uh, later, the southern kingdom is, um, is also captured by Babylon. Separate empire comes in, captures the southern kingdom. But those uh, tribes are eventually allowed to return to the southern 
So today, we are looking at a story from the Northern Kingdom, where organized Baal worship is happening. We have Elijah and Elisha who are prophesying in this area. Um, so I think, are we good on sound? We're okay? Okay. I think that, um, okay, so the story that's read for us takes place in the Northern Kingdom before the exile. So this is the North and the South are still intact. Um, and I think that Elisha doesn't get as much airtime in the church as he deserves, honestly. We talk a lot more about his predecessor, Elijah, maybe because he went toe-to-toe with like the ultimate bad guy, king and queen, with Ahab and Jezebel. Maybe it's because of his epic challenge for the prophets of Baal, and he calls down fire from heaven. Maybe it's because John the Baptist is called Elijah. Maybe it's because Elijah comes at the transfiguration. I mean, these are all really good reasons. Elijah's very dramatic. But Elisha, Elisha was kind of like his protege, came after him, and he saw Elijah be taken up to heaven by the chariots of fire, and he asked to receive a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And he does. And the Bible actually tells us that about twice as many miracles related to Elisha. Um, And some of those actually reflect some of the miracles of Jesus. So he's, I think, an underappreciated biblical character. So during the time that Elisha was prophes- prophesying, Israel was, the northern kingdom of Israel was in these ongoing skirmishes with their neighbor to the east, Aram. And the Arameans are sending these uh, bands of soldiers in, and they're like sneak attacking on the king. And uh, Elisha keeps warning the king where they're going to be and where they're coming which is like pretty irritating. They're very annoyed because they're trying to sneak attack and Elisha's like, oh, watch out, king, they're going to be over here. So the king of Aram decides he's got to have a spy in his troops. It's the only way that the king of Israel could know where they're going to be. Um, But the soldiers come and they say, it's not a spy, it's this annoying prophet Elisha. He knows what you say in your bedroom. Like God has given him this knowledge. So in our passage today, oh, so the king then was like, well, let's go after Elisha. So in our passage today, we see Elisha's servant getting up in the morning and discovering that an army of horses and chariots has surrounded them, has surrounded the city. They're coming for Elisha. So he's a bit concerned. He goes back to Elisha. He says, oh no, this is bad. What should we do? Elisha, however, is not concerned because he can see something that his servant can't. And he says, don't be afraid because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. This probably feels like a weird response when there's a few of you and a lot of them and they have horses, swords and whatnot. But Elisha then prays for his servant's eyes to be opened. And the servant looks and he sees the hills full of horses and chariots of fire. Now, I feel like this could be terrifying, but apparently it was comforting. I don't know how I would feel in that situation, but knowing that God has got your back, that God is on your side, that's comforting. So this is, this is weird, but the story goes on and gets weirder. The enemy keeps progressing towards Elisha because apparently they can't see the flaming army in the hills. They are not aware that they're They keep coming, and um, Elisha prays, that God would strike the Arameans with blindness, and he does. 
So now we've got this strong contrast here between those who can see and those who can't. Not only can the Arameans not see the forces of God that are with Elisha, they eventually can't even see Elisha. Elisha's servant, through this story, has his eyes progressively opened, right? He sees the enemy, and then he sees God's army in the hills. The opposite happens with the Arameans. Their eyes become more closed. They eventually can't even see what's right in front of them. They can't see the army in the hills, and then they also can't even see God's prophet in front of them. So Elisha tells the invaders, you know, this isn't, I'm, this isn't who you're looking for. You need to come with me. So I stop and I wonder about this, this blindness, right? So could they, could they physically see nothing where all of a sudden it was just dark? Uh, maybe, right? The text doesn't tell us for sure. Um, but I'm definitely reminded here of the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus and walking with the men who don't know it's him until their eyes are opened, right? There's this kind of hints of like spiritual blindness or something on a spiritual level that's going on. Um, because I would expect that if all of a sudden the army was struck blind, you would have the scene of mass chaos, right? But we don't, we don't see that. So I feel like there's probably some kind of spiritual blindness that they're experiencing. Um, and I think that the language of the text, the way it talks about eyes being opened and closed, um, you know, the servant was not blind before Elisha prayed for his eyes to be opened, but he, his eyes were spiritually open to what was happening. Most likely, the Aramean forces have become not physically blind, but spiritually blind to God's forces in the hills, but also to God's uh, prophet right in front of them. Uh, there's a first century Jewish historian, Josephus. He writes about it, and he says that God put a mist between Elisha and the Arameans, and they could not see him through the mist. So maybe there was a mist. But whatever soldiers were awake, alive, functioning, and completely lost. So our tricky friend Elisha, knowing that the troops suddenly have no knowledge of who he is and where they are going, he says, follow me, guys. <laughs> I'll take you where you need to go. And he leads the army into the capital city of Samaria. And here the Lord opened their eyes, and they realized, it doesn't say that they saw, but they realized where they were. So again, the language makes me think we're talking about spiritual blindness. They realized that they were inside the capital city of the enemy and had been handed over to the king of Israel. And the story goes on. The king of Israel saw them, and he immediately asked Elisha, should I kill them? And Elisha was like, no, you can't kill them. You didn't capture them in war. If you did capture them in war, would you just kill them then? Like, you, you can't just go around killing people who just walked in here. So instead, he tells the king, prepare a feast for them. He prepares a feast for them in the presence of their enemies. He shows them this incredible godlike mercy. So the king prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. And our first century historian again tells us, the king of Aram wondered at it, and also at that prophet with whom God was so evidently present. 
So he determined to make no more secret attempts upon the king of Israel out of fear of Elisha. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding the region. Now, honestly, the whole story is just weird from beginning to end, but most of what we read about the prophets is weird. It's weird stuff because it's otherworldly, right? The prophets are addressing the issues of the world, but they're speaking and they're acting on behalf of heaven. They are trying to open our eyes to God with us. And my goodness, if our eyes are opened, why would we ever worship anything but God? But we do because so often we're blind. We're blind like Elisha's servant before his eyes are opened. We're sometimes blind like the Arameans who have no understanding of where they are or what's happening. And so often we forget, we don't see that the ones who are with us outnumber the ones who are against us. We panic. We think we have to fight our own causes, but we forget that the hills are full of chariots and horses, and God is with us. And by the end of the book of 2 Kings, due to their ongoing persistent idolatry, both the northern and southern kingdoms have gone into exile, as the prophets warned them that they would. Now, eventually, the people from the southern kingdom are allowed to return to Judah and rebuild the temple uh, because of this guy here, Cyrus the Great. Um, so Cyrus the Great, well, do we only have half a picture there? That's fine. Cyrus the Great um, uh, was Persian, and he took over Babylon. And when he took over, uh, he allowed the people from the tribes of Judah to return to Judah and rebuild their temples. And what we don't have a picture there of is the Cyrus Cylinder, which is an artifact we actually have today in the British Museum, because where else would it be? And on it, it says, it's written by Cyrus the Great saying that he is allowing um, the people to return their idols to their temples and to worship their own religion. So, um, so that's the Edict of Cyrus. The people returned to Judah uh, and to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Uh, and now you remember, side note, that David, when he built, when he moved the capital to Jerusalem, he brought the Ark of the Covenant to the uh, capital there, right? The, pres the visible presence of God. Well, shortly before the exile, we don't hear about the Ark again. It disappears. It doesn't come back to the temple when the people come back. Why and where is it? I do not know. But they made a lot of movies about it. It might be in the British Museum. <laughs> so we see God working through the prophets in exile and in the return to Judah, returning his people to the land to rebuild their temple. We see God in the prophets over the next hundred years or so while they rebuild the temple, the second temple period it's called. But then we also kind of don't see God for a while, at least not in the biblical text, because after the prophet Malachi, there is no biblical text for several hundred years. Now, it doesn't mean that God isn't there and God isn't working in this, what we call the intertestamental period. We do have writing and history from this time. It's just generally not considered to be inspired in the same way that the rest of the text is. There's a gap here. But then God came to be with us in the most visible way yet through the incarnation of Jesus. All through the Bible, up until Jesus is born, God is visible, God is invisible, he's visible again, now he's not, but he's always working. 
always. And those moments when God is visible are those reminders for the times when he's not. The people look back and they remember what God has done for them. But then through the incarnation, something different happens. God's people can see God. They can touch God. They can talk with God. They can walk with God and eat with God and weep with God in a way that has never happened before. If you want to see God, look to Jesus. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the visible image of the invisible God. Now, in the Gospels, God is moving, walking, talking, teaching, delivering. He's upending systems that have grown blind. He's opening the eyes of the people. The light is shining in the darkness, and people living in darkness have seen a great light. But also, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Like the Arameans standing right in front of the man of God, Elisha, God stood right in front of people, and they didn't recognize him. Jesus even says, God has testified about me through the scriptures, and you study the scriptures, but you still don't know who I am. And how often do we hear people say things like, if God would just do this for me, I would believe. Or I have no reason to believe because I have never seen God do anything. I've never seen God. I've never seen God work. But haven't you? Is it possible that you're not looking? Is it possible that you're walking around with your eyes wide open, unable to see what's right in front of you? I feel like we all aspire to be like Elisha, so close with God that we actually see his presence around us. And I think on a good day, we're probably closer to Elisha's servant, where we are able to trust in God and to have our eyes opened for moments at a time. And I think on a bad day, we're like the Arameans who have no idea where we are or what's going on. It's like that week between Christmas and New Year's, and you're like full of cheese and don't know what day it is. But we can't live in that space. We can't stay fumbling around in the mist. We have to have our eyes opened. We have two more Sundays in Advent, two more weeks before we celebrate the light of life coming into the world. We've remembered that God is with us, working for us, even when we don't see him. But let's also challenge ourselves to see him, to look for him. Sometimes we can't, and in those times, we have to trust. We have to trust that the hills are full of chariots and horses. But we can also ask God to open our eyes, like Elisha and like his servant. And when we feel like we really can't see God, no matter how hard we try, we can look to Jesus. Okay, this is important, so if you tuned out, come back for a second, because I think this is really important. A lot of people walked with Jesus and didn't believe in him. But you and I and all of us have something available to us that they didn't have. We have the Holy Spirit. God's presence on earth isn't just in the tabernacle or in the temple or in some location. It's in me, it's in you, it's in everyone who believes in him. We are his temple and he dwells in us because he came and was born and died and rose again. We are living in extraordinary time. 
We are living with God's Holy Spirit in us, and we are waiting for him to come again. And when he comes again, his presence will be everywhere, and everyone will see him clearly. So we're in Advent. We're preparing our hearts for the coming of the Lord, for the day when there will be no darkness, and everyone will walk in the light. And here we are with God's Spirit available to us and living in us. So ask God to show you his presence this week. Ask God to show you where is he working in your life. How is he with you that you didn't see before? Because I know he's there. I know he's there with you. May your eyes be opened. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for Christmas. We are grateful for the birth of your son, Jesus, that he came into this world to be with us in a way that you have never been with us before. We are grateful for your spirit dwelling in us, that your presence is with us in a way that it has never been before. We ask, Lord, that you would give us faith, that we would trust that you are with us, and that you would open our eyes to see that the hills are full of chariots and horses, Lord. Remind us every day that those who are with us outnumber those who are against us. Lord, fill us with your peace and prepare our hearts for your presence. Help us to know your love more every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.